This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, May 4th. I'm Doug Blair. And I'm Virginia Allen. On today's show, Rachel Del Judas talks with Christopher Rufo, a visiting fellow for domestic policy studies at the Heritage Foundation and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He discusses how critical race theory is affecting what children learn in schools and what parents should know about it. They also discuss how critical race theory is affecting corporate America. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. Wyoming Republican Representative Liz Cheney says those who claim that the 2020 election was stolen are poisoning our democratic system. Cheney tweeted on Monday that the 2020 presidential election was not stolen. Anyone who claims it was is spreading the big lie, turning their back on the rule of law and poisoning our democratic system. Cheney's tweet came shortly after former President Donald Trump released a statement saying that the fraudulent presidential election of 2020 will be, from this day forth, known as the big lie. Cheney is one of 10 Republicans who voted to impeach President Trump after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell signaled on Monday that President Biden's massive $4.1 trillion infrastructure policy package will receive zero support from the Senate GOP. In a press conference against broader opposition to Democratic policy priorities, McConnell stated that the bill, quote, is not going to get support from our side, according to CNBC. Biden's current proposal, the $2.3 trillion American Jobs Plan and the $1.8 trillion American Families Plan, contains a vast array of proposed government spending, including repairing roads, ports and rail, as well as government subsidized pre-K and child care. Sub-Republicans have countered Biden's $4.1 trillion plan with a $568 billion plan, which the president signaled he was willing to negotiate on. Without Republican support in the evenly divided Senate, Democrats will have to use reconciliation, a procedure that allows lawmakers in certain circumstances to bypass the 60 votes needed to break a filibuster in order to pass the legislation. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed a bill invalidating the remaining emergency COVID-19 orders across the state of Florida. DeSantis made the announcement Monday morning per WFLA News Channel 8. Today, I'm going to let the legislatures come up. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to sign the bill. It's effective July 1st. I'll also sign an executive order pursuant to that bill, uh, invalidating all remaining local emergency COVID orders effective on July 1st. Uh, But then to bridge the gap between then and now, I'm going to suspend uh, under my executive power the local uh, emergency orders um, as it relates to COVID. Um, I think that's the evidence-based thing to do. I think the fact... I think, I think folks that are saying that they need to be policing people at this point, if you're saying that, you really are saying you don't believe in the vaccines. You don't believe in the data. You don't believe in the science. Uh, we've embraced the vaccines. We've embraced the science on it. Uh, the data, uh, I've said, has been good from the beginning in terms of clinical trials. It's even better in real life. And so uh, it's available. We want everyone to get it. And if you get it, just know 
that um, the reason you get it is because we want to be able to have people uh, enjoy themselves and, and live, live freely in the state of Florida. The bill also prohibits vaccine passports. DeSantis said that the people of Florida have a right to participate in society, go to a restaurant, movie, a ball game, all these things without having to divulge whether or not they have received the vaccine. In a surprise announcement on Friday, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser updated the city's coronavirus restrictions to include a ban on standing and dancing at weddings. While the new orders allow indoor and outdoor weddings to operate at 25% capacity or to have up to 250 people, guests must remain seated and socially distanced at all times during the ceremony. Mayor Bowser's office responded to questions about the new orders from local news outlet Fox 5 DC, saying the dancing ban is an extra layer of safety to reduce the spread of COVID-19 because when people stand and dance, their behavior changes. The news is leading many couples to move their weddings to neighboring Virginia and Maryland, which do not have such restrictions in place. Now stay tuned for Rachel Del Judas's conversation with Christopher Rufo as they discuss critical race theory and how it's affecting society. Never has it been more important for us to fight for America. Each day we see the penalties of progressive policies across our nation. Our elections are under assault. Our economic freedom is on the decline and our culture is turning its back on the founding principles that have made us the freest, most prosperous nation in history. That's why the Heritage Foundation developed a plan to take on the left and take back our country. The Citizen's Guide to Fight for America provides a series of heritage-recommended action items delivered on a regular basis to your inbox. Make an impact in your community and in our country. Sign up for the Citizen's Guide at heritage.org slash citizens guide and join in the fight for America today. We're joined on the Daily Signal by Chris Rufo. He's a visiting fellow for domestic studies at the Heritage Foundation and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Christopher, it's great to have you with us on the Daily Signal. It's good to be with you. Well, you just dropped a paper for the Heritage Foundation called Critical Race Theory Would Not Solve Racial Inequality, It Would Deepen It. Why is this the case? Can you tell us about this? Well, I mean, it's the case because you have to separate uh, premise from conclusion when you look at uh, ideologies, when you look at policy recommendations. And I think it's the case in giving people the benefit of the doubt that the critical race theorists in general have the intention to reduce racial inequalities, to achieve what they call racial equity. But, you know, you have to actually ask, well, what are specifically they proposing? So I go through a number of their specific proposals, and then I share evidence essentially that to the contrary, that they make this mistake that they assume that all inequality is driven by uh, capitalist uh, domination, racial oppression, patriarchy, the whole series of structures that they identify as needing to be overthrown, uh, where, you know, their policy prescriptions would, in many cases, uh, actually damage the things that we know from social science that is across the partisan, across the kind of ideological and partisan spectrum, actually really important. Things like family structure, things like educational attainment, um, uh, things like workforce participation. Those three institutions, actual live human uh, concrete institutions are extremely important determinants of, of poverty and inequality. 
And yet the critical race theorists seem to dismiss them altogether, preferring these large-scale revolutionary programs that uh, historically have done nothing. You know, maybe in some cases they flatten inequality only because they make everyone poor and subject to tyrannical rule. Well, for those who aren't familiar with critical race theory, can you just give us a refresher on what it is? Yeah, critical race theory is an academic discipline uh, that came to fruition, I guess, you know, 30 years ago now, uh, that holds that racism is uh, the driving force in society, uh, that in order to understand power relations, in order to understand institutions such as the law, education, uh, the constitution, um, uh, social relations, you have to understand that through the lens of race. And they argue that um, the United States is uh, on the surface a country that preaches equality, that preaches freedom, uh, but is, these are actually camouflages for racial oppression, capitalist exploitation, etc. We've done a lot of work on reporting on critical race theory and how we're seeing it affect children in schools. Can you give us some examples of what you've seen? Yeah, I, I just finished up, a, I guess now, a 12-part series of investigative reports, all original reporting on critical race theory in schools. And, uh, you know, the stuff that you uncover is, is, is pretty, pretty brutal. It's pretty rough. It's uh, first graders in Cupertino, California, being forced to deconstruct their racial and sexual identities and then rank themselves according to power and privilege. Um, it's fifth grade teachers in Springfield, Missouri, uh, being forced to locate themselves on an oppression matrix. So telling certain teachers by, the by their virtue of their inborn characteristics, they're oppressors, others are oppressed. It's uh, uh, teachers in Philadelphia forcing fifth grade students to celebrate black communism, simulate an Angela Davis black power rally, and then sharing videos that, you know, paint a kind of horrific and very one-sided picture of the United States in a school, in this case, where 87% of students fail to achieve basic literacy. And I could go on and on, you know, my, my reporting is all out there, you can find it, but the, the conclusion is that you have this very strange moment in which elite academic institutions, some of the most uh, expensive private schools, are adopting this kind of racial equity mania at the same time that some of the lowest performing and poorest schools are also adopting it. And you have to wonder, what does this serve? Whose interests and, and in what capacity? And I think a lot of it with the elite schools is that they're excited about the kind of moral posturing of this. Uh, and then for the really failing school districts like Buffalo, like Philadelphia, uh, like Chicago in some, in some parts of Chicago, um, my read on it, it almost seems like a diversion mechanism. These schools uh, where, you know, large majority of, of, of students can, can, cannot read and write at basic proficiency by the time they graduate uh, middle school, um, they're shifting the blame to these abstract societal problems um, while ignoring the fact that in many cases these schools have uh, resources, $15,000, $18,000 a year per student, um, and have failed year after year after year to, to educate uh, educate kids in the very basics of what they're going to need to understand in order to make progress. So um, we have this really strange paradox where these institutions that, in my view, are perpetuating inequalities, are positioning themselves as the great fighters of inequality. And I, I think it's, it's totally bogus. It's totally fake. It's totally self-serving. What can parents do to make sure their kids aren't being taught critical race theory? Parents, I mean, parents can do a lot. Uh, you have a couple of options. Uh, one, you can exit. Uh, that's 
probably a smart move for people who are in uh, very politicized educational environments. You can put your kid in a different school, you can move, you can uh, take evasive action in order to, to, to avoid this stuff. Um, but for parents that suspect that they're in a more moderate political environment where they could have some power, some influence, some, um, uh, some voice, uh, they have to really fight back. And I, I think that what I've seen as probably the most inspiring example are uh, Asian American parents in schools across the country from Virginia to California to Washington State um, who see critical race theory as uh, racially discriminatory against their kids. Uh, who see critical race theory as, um, as, as frankly, a waste of time, uh, comparing it to other kind of core academic pursuits. Uh, and then they also see it as, um, as seeking to destroy the avenues for academic excellence um, that, frankly, Asian-American kids uh, dominate if you look at the outcomes. And so Asian-American parents in, in California and Virginia, Washington State, other places have organized first by coming together as a group, figuring out what the problem is, demanding to know what's in the curriculum, going to the teacher, going to the principal, going to the school board, uh, running, you know, in some cases, uh, political action committees, uh, leaking materials to the media, um, running a pretty sophisticated campaign to protect what they see as uh, the best education for their kids. What about corporate America? Are we seeing critical race theory infiltrate there? We are. Um, I don't know. I, I'm torn. I, I think that a lot of it is just um, a reflection that big companies in major cities that have uh, kind of hi highly educated workforces, part of it is just that these ideas have permeated a professional and managerial class mindset. They take root into corporations, in HR, in diversity departments, and philanthropic initiatives. Um, but I, I think it's less deeply rooted than in government or education because ultimately a lot of these corporate uh, leaders um, aren't true believers in this stuff. They're doing it as a form of insurance. They don't want to get protested. They don't want to get boycotted. They want, don't want to get trashed in the New York Times. So they put up these signals to protect themselves, uh, almost like, you know, shops in, in you know, Sicily would, would you know, kind of pay a little bit of protection money to the mafia uh, in order to not get their store burned down. Um, it's the same process. So I think if the political grounds shift, corporations will shift very quickly and much more easily than other institutions. What about media coverage? Is critical race theory infiltrating there at all? It's interesting. I mean, in a formal sense, a lot of the mainstream media outlets yeah, are pushing, whether they know it or not, the critical race theory ideology in their coverage. But my sense is that critical race theory itself is not very popular. The media seems reluctant to defend it on the merits. They like to kind of name call. And I think that the more you expose what's happening in institutions, that is, I mean, truly indefensible, um, you're starting to see even center-left media starting to kind of pull away. There's still going to be a hardcore set of people that just push, 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 but I don't know. I, 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 it really is kind of kind of a bewildering moment. Is do people believe this stuff? I don't think so. I think I think people are becoming more and more skeptical as media splinters into rival camps. They're 
you know, the single story, the single narrative, the single framework can't hold. I think over time, that's what we'll see. Well, in a speech you wrote on critical race theory for Hillsdale, you said that too many Americans have developed an acute fear of speaking up about social and political issues, especially those involving race. Christopher, how can this be fixed? I mean, speak, right? I mean, it's a pretty simple problem. If people are too scared to speak, they have to speak anyways. I mean, it's like, in one sense, it's probably the simplest problem of all to solve, but it would require the virtue of courage. And that's something that I think... Uh, many people right now uh, lack and many people right now need to be inspired uh, in order to summon that virtue into their daily life. And, you know, I'm hopeful. I I think what, what I've seen in the last six months is that whistleblowers or dissenters or conscientious objectors within institutions are starting to come forward. Last year, you had someone from the National Nuclear Laboratory stand up against what was happening. You've had teachers in New York, parents in Virginia and California standing up against this at, frankly, grave personal risk to their reputation, their employment, you know, their, their peace of mind, but are making a principled stand. And I think, and I'm persuaded that this process can only get easier over time. As more people st- speak out, as more people simply just state their convictions, we'll see the cost of having courage decrease. So actually become easier to do. And my sense is that we're getting there. We're already at some kind of inflection point and uh, something I hope it continues. Would you say there's any relationship between critical race theory and Black Lives Matter? That's something that is being talked about a lot. Is there any relationship there? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that if you read the critical race theory law review articles and position papers and scholarly books from 1995, um, and then you listen to the speeches at full length from a Black Lives Matter rally in Minneapolis or Seattle or Portland, um, it's, just, it's just a translation effect where they're taking the ideas, basic concepts from critical race theory that are very academic, that are very abstract, and they're distilling it down to street language, to political sloganeering, to banners and posters and other very basic syntax of, of political persuasion. So I think if you look at critical race theory as an ideology and then you actually listen to the speeches that are driving the street protests, they're essentially the same thing. They're just a translation uh, from the academy to the street how would you encourage policymakers to respond to critical race theory? Two ways. First, you need to protect your public institutions from this ideology that promotes race essentialism, the idea that you should be judged on the basis of your race, that promotes um, collective guilt, the idea that you are guilty of something that someone else did historically because you share some uh, uh, ancestral background with them. Uh, It also promotes neo-segregation, so splitting dormitories, splitting public facilities, splitting training sessions. Um, And all three of those things, in my view, are already illegal under the Civil Rights Act to promote in public institutions. But legislators have an opportunity, and legislators in, I think, now 11 states are, are, are introducing legislation to this effect, to say, these are the things that we don't teach in our schools. These are the things that we don't uh, promote in our public institutions. It's actually incumbent upon legislators to set the ground rules, to set the guardrails, to make sure that public institutions reflect the values of the public. Uh, And then second, 
policymakers need to think much bigger and in a much more structural way on how you can change some of the fundamentals, uh, some of the fundamental uh, institutional patterns and funding mechanisms and 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 powers, uh, in order to decentralize as much authority, decentralize as much control, decentralize as many resources as possible back to American families, frankly. Um, and then if the families are in control, set the agenda, if the families are, can make choices, if the families uh, control um, the, the directionality, the kind of the, 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 the flow of resources, we're going to see very different uh, public institutions. We're going to see very different values reflected that, in my view, are going to be, you know, some people want to do critical race theory thing. Great. But the vast majority of people do not. And public institutions uh, should be shaped in order to achieve that. Well, before we go, you uh, started a new center called Battlefront. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a small studio, and uh, it's something that I'm running with a very small team. And we're going to be doing a series of projects where we take some of the academic or journalistic work that I do for, uh, for Manhattan Institute or have done for Heritage Foundation, and take it out of think tank world and actually get it out into society, get it out into those cultural and social and political fights. And what we're doing is, uh, is, is, is really three things. We're doing um, uh, creative projects, so uh, filmmaking and, and other kind of creative content that reaches a, an audience. Uh, we're also um, uh, working on policy uh, to actually get policy out of the halls of, 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 out of off of my computer and into the world. Uh, and then we're also um, uh, doing lawsuits. I've organized a coalition. We now have more than 100 uh, attorneys, um, some volunteer and, and then some institutional players that are filing lawsuits across the country. We're going to file, I think, at least 10 by the end of the summer to fight some of these pernicious, divisive, race-based ideologies within public institutions to, to establish that actually these programs and practices are not only morally and intellectually bankrupt, but they're actually illegal under existing law. So those are the projects that we're going to be doing. I'm very excited about it. Well, congratulations. And Christopher, thank you for joining us on The Daily Signal. It's great having you. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to The Daily Signal podcast. You can find The Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.